Surviving Separation, a podcast to help you through the broad and complex issues around family, relationships and divorce. Brought to you by TGB Lawyers. We are back for another episode of the Surviving Separation podcast. Welcome listeners. Today we're talking about not just divorce, uh, which is a topic that we cover all the time, but we're taking a look at good divorce. What does it look like? What steps we can take? And how can we make the impact on you and your families that little bit easier when you choose to make that tough decision to go down that road? So, to help us with this today, we have Tyndall Gas Bentley partner, Jane Miller. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Thanks, Michael. And we have uh, a very special guest with us today, Dr. Priscilla Dunk-West, who is a Flinders University sociologist and researcher. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, Priscilla, we'll, we'll start with you. Um, a couple of months back, I saw a fascinating article um, with some research that you were doing along with your colleague, um, Dr. Chris Natalia, mm-hmm. um, and it was about this sort of, I guess, groundbreaking study, which you're currently undergoing. Is, is that right? That's right, yeah. yes. Um, and it's called Positive Post-Separation Parenting Study. Mm-hmm. Um, I was blown away by it simply because it took a look at the positive aspects of what divorce can do and what parents can do when they separate. Um, What inspired this? Um, uh, Look, I agree, you know, not to blow my own trumpet, but it is groundbreaking in that there's nothing out there that's looked at the effects of separation or the ways that people can navigate separation in a positive way um, so far. So um, both Chris and I have backgrounds in working, uh, researching families and relationships. And when we looked to the literature, we couldn't find any kind of positive stories from people. What we knew anecdotally was that people navigated this terrain in a positive way, in a way that was child-centred, for example. And we knew stories of this, but we didn't see it in the research literature. So that really led us, that sort of led us to ask the question, what happens when things go right? What can people teach us um, that they've learnt about trying to work on a really positive relationship, and particularly in relation to co-parenting? Jane, um, interesting thing which uh, Priscilla mentioned there was Mm child-centred, and that's something which you quite often mention Mm, as well. Including the child-centeredness, are you also finding that, you know, clients are sort of taking, trying to take a more positive approach these days or you need to guide them towards that or is it still sort of a very adversarial thing that, that happens with divorce? When children are involved, it's certainly my experience that clients want to come into um, all interactions with their children's interests at heart. You know, no one comes in saying, I really want to muck this up for my kids. Everyone has the right intention what I do see in my work as a lawyer, however, is that sometimes my client or the other party's own emotional state affects their ability to genuinely put their child's interests first and that they start their perspective starts to get um, mixed just because of their own emotional state and their own feelings about the ex-partner and not dealing with those feelings properly. Yeah, so is that sort of, I guess, one of those hurdles that you initially have to sort of speak to people about as oh, well? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, I've said it before in this podcast <laughs> and in many other forums, but pretty much every new client that I see, I always recommend that they go and get some support from uh, a therapist or a counsellor, a psychologist, to help 
support them through this process. And even if the separation was really amicable and even if things are going really well, that can um, getting that support can do no harm and often it can do amazing, um, has an, have an amazing influence on the situation because whilst it might be amicable now, um, you know, when the ex gets a new girlfriend or boyfriend mm. in six months' time or there's a problem about negotiating Christmas Day, um, things might not still be amicable. And so that I think that having that right support just puts them in the right headspace to be able to do the best thing for their kids. Sure. So it sounds like, you know, the initial thing is, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's the communication thing as well, straight up. What we're finding, so we're currently, we've, we're doing a survey and we're interviewing people who have had positive or do have positive um, post-separation relationships and managed to successfully co-parent their children or child. Um, what we're finding with the communication aspect of things is that um, communication will change across time. So whereas at the beginning people might be more inclined to write emails or letters to each other or texts, that this can shift um, depending on how things are going. So it doesn't mean that just because the relationship is positive now, it means it always has been. So some people have come from places that were very difficult, very difficult negotiations have taken place and they've worked towards, over a number of years, worked towards having a really positive relationship. And in terms of being child-centred, it's not only just, it's not only being able to, as you say, being able to separate the emotional dimension of their relationship, but to also say, see the world from the child's perspective mm -hmm. and say, do you want your child to have a good relationship with the other parent? Um, so the other thing about communication, I guess, is that it can be verbal or written and people can make agreements about, you know, how that will shift and change. Um, but also what we're noticing is that in terms of communication, people talk about biting their tongue, holding their tongue, hold, holding mm. off, mm. making, taking particular statements out of context or, or picking a fight uh, with the other partner. So it's not only about what's said but also what's not said mm -hmm. so some people have talked about for example choosing their battles mm -hmm. um and and letting go of some of the other things that they might you know ordinarily pick up with their partner in uh and the purpose of that is to really create an environment where they have a positive relationship mm -hmm. that focuses on parenting mm. it's really interesting you mentioned that i'll just sort of bring in a real sort of small example of that from you know a, a friend of mine um who you know has said something along similar lines which was that even when i disagree with my ex and i have you know just really am frustrated by the and she she's she's the primary carer you know the decision that she made regarding something to do with school or, or anything like that he goes i also know that she is their mum and she has their best interests at heart. Mm -hmm. So even though we may butt heads over this, mm. it's not worth butting heads on this particular thing because she's done it coming from the same perspective that I would be, which is that I love those kids and I mm. would do the right thing by them. Mm -hmm. And that almost created a bit of a, a circuit breaker in his mind whenever he got frustrated mm. about things and went, this one isn't worth it. I'm just going to let that go straight through to the keeper mm -hmm. instead. Mm, exactly. And, it's, and it's, in some ways it's holding on to the big picture holding on to that bigger picture and not getting distracted by other other things. I guess one of the myths about separation and divorce is that, you're, you know, when, particularly when you have children, is that your relationship ends. Mm. Um, and so for some people it's about recognising that if you want your child to have 
you know, both parents in their life, this is a relationship that's going to sustain in other forms beyond that, you know, romantic ending. Mm. It's... um. It's something that you touched on in that news.com.au article, actually, and it's a quote that I loved, and I think it was from one of your case studies, and it simply said, after seeing our divorces, our friends have been encouraged to try harder at their divorces too. And that's just such a great concept, those words, try harder mm. at your divorce, because you're attached for life no matter what happens. Mm. You know, the, through, as those kids grow up, you know, it's a relationship. The divorce relationship is still a relationship. That's right. <clears throat> and that's what we're finding is that... Um, also, I think, you know, in relation to that quote, I like that too, that, that, that idea of working at the relationship, working hard, and that, that it's not necessarily always perfect, but that the, um, you know, the co-parenting um, relationship is something that is worked on and shifts and changes over time, but that, that both people have uh, a kind of sense of the bigger picture of being child-focused and, and being positive role models for their children in terms of their relationships. But the other thing is that friends are really important too. Friends and networks and um, word of mouth has a really big influence on how people navigate that terrain. And, um, you know, we've talked about bird nesting, for example, mm. this idea that, that the children remain in the family home and the parents sort of um, take turns um, caregiving in the family home. Those sort of new forms are very under-theorised at the moment, but they're things that people are doing to creatively navigate what was traditionally seen as a very acrimonious situation. Mm. Um, the bird nesting thing is super interesting. Um, are we seeing a little bit more of that, um, either within the firm or sort of throughout the, the legal industry mm. in general? We're only seeing a little bit about it, actually. I think, I think that people... I think it's not out in the public domain as much as it could be and that it is an option that people could think that they would genuinely look at and, and talk about doing, but... It also sounds really expensive. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, to be honest, when a lot of people separate, what normally happens is one stays in the home with the kids in the short term and then the other one goes and sleeps in the spare bedroom of, you know, mum and dad's place mm. or their best friend's place. So it doesn't mean they have to sort of set up a whole second home. They can, certainly in the short term at least, keep the kids in the home, continue to share their income and almost mum and dad really just couch surf for a little while. Um you know, until things settle down a little bit. So we're certainly seeing a little bit of it, but not not as much as as perhaps we could do. I think it's definitely an area for people to know more about and contemplate. Um, we sort of talked a little bit about, you know, or a lot about, you know, sort of co-parenting and being child-centred and, you know, I almost kind of the answer to this question before I ask it, but because we've seen, we see a lot of examples of it, but what in, in you know, um, Priscilla, your view and also mm. Jane, your view, the examples of bad divorce, you know, what are the telltale signs that this isn't going to be easy? Um, perhaps for some of our listeners that, you know, might be on the cusp of it or have just started this, perhaps there's some sort of red flags as well, um, which, you know, would suggest that this isn't going to turn it. This could be a difficult road to travel um, unless they maybe pivot one way or another and, and, and change up their tactics a little bit. Yeah, uh, well, I think there is... We all know horror stories, right, of 
of divorce. Oh, you know, this happened and it was terrible. And there's a lot of stories that we remember and it's probably because we remember the bad stories. I, th- I guess the other thing is if we think about divorce now compared to, say, one or two generations ago, um, it's really shifted. So we have a greater recognition of the role of the father, for example, whereas women were traditionally seen as being the person who would raise the children and that was automatic. So that's kind of shifted um, a little bit. Um, I think... Some some of the some of the difficult kind of signifiers, I guess, of a bad relationship would be, um, you know, parents, as you said before, about emotions getting carried out ca- carried up with emotion in front of children, mm-hmm. and that's what we don't want to see. It doesn't mean that that's ruined forever. It just means that there needs to be a reorientation towards what is best for the child or children. Um, so so arguing. Um, particularly verbal arguing, raised voices, that sort of thing can be really difficult for children to live through no matter what their ages are. Um, We know um, in terms of existing research, we know that most people um, agree on where the child resides, for example. We know that most people have a fairly good experience or neutral experience of divorce so as I said it is kind of, it is kind of highlighted because we remember these horror stories mm-hmm. yeah that look I agree with all of that I think that that's right we do remember the um, even when I think about my clients I always tend to reflect mm-hmm. upon the ones that were particularly nasty mm-hmm. files where there was a lot of um, animosity and we forget about the ones where it actually all goes really well and smoothly um, so coming back to the, the question, I think that some of the early warning signs are perhaps where there's a lot of mistrust between mm-hmm. the parties um, and that mistrust might be something that either happened in the relationship or it could be something that happened after the relationship, whether it's you know one person suggesting the other one wasn't around and diligent in terms of you know, seeing the child and turning up when they'd say they would or um, feeling that you know one person supporting the relationship and the other one's not with the child. So certainly as lawyers, when we come on board, sometimes we see the need to try and help build the party's trust in each other. If we take a look at, you know, sort of there's good ways of doing this and there's bad ways of doing this and, uh, you know, lots of telltale signs, what are some examples of of bad divorce that that we've seen from both of your perspectives? Well, I guess firstly, um, there is some research that sort of shows that people are able to navigate this terrain without too much difficulty. So the bad divorce is sort of this idea that we have um, that isn't necessarily reflected in people's experiences. It's certainly something that I think people just latch on to. They just look at it and go, you're going to be bankrupt and just mentally done in and it's not going to be easy and just almost people are resigned to it do you think people sort of come in with that sort of mentality that they're resigned to the fact this might be hard i think they see it everywhere we're just saying they they see it in terms of perhaps previous generations when when the role of the father probably wasn't acknowledged as much as it is now um where we see you know women bearing the majority of responsibility for raising children um and so you know people reflect on their past perhaps a generation or so ago um they also see in movies and popular culture this dominant kind of discourse this idea that's all pervasive that divorce is bad divorce is bad for kids and so you know people would carry with them a lot of guilt and and shame around you know coming to that decision um but, okay, so all of that out of the way, there are, you know, there are signs of when things are going badly and they would be where, um, you know, the separating couple aren't able to 
keep their emotions in check in front of the children and are perhaps arguing in front of the children. I think that puts the children in really difficult situation where they're seeing their parents kind of at war with each other. So that would be a, a sign, I guess, of things kind of going down the wrong path. Mm. Mm, absolutely. And, and certainly when I meet with clients, I guess one of the things I pick up upon when I think this might be a tricky file or, or might not go that well is perhaps when the client almost has a view that divorce is something that can be won or lost. So it's an adversarial thing. Yeah, that's mm. an adversarial thing and that they're either going to come out on top or they're not mm. going to. They're going to be the loser in the situation. And so I think that creates a whole lot of anxiety and then almost um, protective behaviours. Maybe competitive which, as well? Yeah, kept absolutely, yeah. like as if they're competing for some sort of resource um, and it very some people limited. might see kids as a prize or the property settlement as a prize yeah, even oh, and that sort of thing. Definitely. Yeah. And I think even sometimes the way the negotiations or litigation play out, they want to feel like the winner mm. in the process as well. Um, sometimes to perhaps, um, you know, make them feel justified for whether they were the victim of the separation or whether they should have been, you know, they were justified for leaving the relationship that they almost want to play it out in a way that proves a point which has got nothing to do with the future or almost as though it was sort of like a like a real court case like it was a guilty not guilty sort of thing yeah that's probably right really yeah absolutely and in Australia we've had no fault divorce since 1975 Mm. so the court really is not interested in anybody's conduct in the relationship um so much you know, in that sort of traditional old-fashioned sense. So maybe we're still holding on to some of those popular views from before 1975 and thinking divorce is negative and bad and someone's a victim and something bad has to have happened and the outcome's going to be bad rather than actually reframing all of that for the modern world. We'll be back to this discussion in just a moment. It's at distressing times like when a relationship breaks down that a caring approach and personalised service really count. That's what TGB's team of accredited family law specialists and experienced family lawyers is all about. TGB's family lawyers are recognised across Australia with the largest team in South Australia and expanding across Western Australia and the Northern Territory. If you need advice for separation, divorce, property settlement or a children's issue, contact TGB. Visit tgb.com.au to arrange an appointment at your nearest office. Isn't it interesting now that the court puts, the court is child-centred and puts the court and and puts children at the centre of things, but we're still trying to coach separated parents to do the same thing. Yeah, it, it's interesting. It's an interesting idea to think that for once you might be taking the court's lead on things and go, that's actually a really good idea. Yeah, and I think, you know, being child-centred, you know, there's some sociological research that looks at the process of a relationship coming to an end. And, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow made this popular with her sort of declaration of um, um, conscious uncoupling. But that's actually drawn from some sociolo- sociological research on uncoupling, which showed that people really went through particular processes in order to uncouple. There was no one point in time where it was that, that's it. There were little things over time. And as that occurs with a separating couple, there has to be a kind of process where people reframe their emotional reactions to each other 
and their emotional reactions to their children. So remaining child-centred really involves separating out the issues that were present in the relationship between the parents and um, the goals of the, you know, co-parents to really remain child-centred and see the world from the child's perspective. You know, this person may not have been a good partner, but I know that this person is a good father or this person is a good mother Um, and really just holding true to that. So you're you're trusting your instincts and, and putting the trust in them that they're still that same great parent, um, yeah. And and for all the I guess grief that Gwyneth and Chris got at the time <laughs> for putting the consciously uncoupling, yeah. you know, sort of words out there into the into the public. I get the feeling that maybe a lot of people looked at it and secretly went, actually, that's a really good term, and <laughs> and, and, and and sort of I guess destigmatized what a divorce mm. could potentially be. Mm. And it was it was the use of different language to describe the ending of a relationship. And I think at the time there was a kind of declaration to commitment to being good co-parents and maintaining that relationship. And certainly we've seen the media report on that as, oh, this is, you know, mm. something a bit different. But actually I think it gives a good example or a good alternative to people uh, to look to to see that actually things can and do look different. You know, co-parents... And separating couples create are creative around their the ways in which they respond to this, um, but we just don't necessarily always hear about that. So, uh, apart from Gwyneth and Chris, um, who get an A plus for this whole thing, um, have, in, in in your research, are there some case studies that have sort of really, you know, sort of jumped out at you in terms of you know that's that's the right way to do it? Um, look, we've we're. We've undertaken a survey and we're still doing interviews, um, but at the moment what we're finding is some pretty clear themes. So there's clear themes around things shifting over time and what's, I guess, you know, when you think about a positive post-separation relationship, um, you think, oh, well, things must have always been good. They're just exceptional people and they have, you know, managed to do this, you know, somehow because they're great people. But actually what we're hearing is things can start off really badly between couples who are separating and who aren't getting along and who can't agree on things. But as long as there's a commitment to being child-centred, a commitment to having each other in the child's life and therefore in each other's lives, that that actually means that um, things can change uh, in a positive direction uh, across time. Time is also really important, uh, it seems. Um, so the longer the time, the more familiarity and the, uh, they have with the situation, but also the longer they've had to get used to this new way of relating mm-hmm. um, and recognising that there is a kind of intimacy uh, that you have with each other um, after divorce because you're involved in your child's mm-hmm. life, because you're discussing you know, shared practices across households, because you're discussing what to do for the next birthday party or what's happening at Christmas. So those sort of conversations are really important for people to continue to have across time. Jane, that sort of sounds like it ties in with something you and I were talking about off air earlier, which is about sort of having to coach your clients into sort of learning to trust that little bit again mm. and, 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 and the time that you just mentioned there, Priscilla, as well. There's a time and trust issue here, which sort of, I guess, when you're at the ground zero of separation, yes. you know, time and trust are just you know, in mm. short supply. Mm. And then how do you build that back up? Mm. A- absolutely. So I think that's right. It's about creating opportunities and hope the situation can improve and um, 
not to be a negative lawyer, but, <laughs> but I think actually the lawyers have to be quite responsible in the way they do work with clients in these situations because, um, you know, the, the best practice for lawyers would be to try and coach people in the right direction rather than tearing them apart and making the situation worse, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a great publication that's put out for lawyers called The Best Practice Guidelines for Lawyers Doing Family Law Work, which is a very long title, but it's put out by the Attorney General's Department. Um, it's probably about seven years old now, and I give it to every junior lawyer that ever comes near my office and, you know, every clerk that I've ever had because I just think it's such a – it's almost like the Bible of how lawyers should do their job responsibly mm. with the well-being of that family unit in mind, you know, five years from now, ten years from now. Um, because you can do a lot of damage with one letter, you know, mm. or um, encouraging clients to take a particular stand can be really disastrous. So, and, and you know, I think that the way the court works, I think the court is really switched on to all of these concepts and is doing the best that it can to kind of help family. You know, once again, to kind of create a process um, that's intended to to build trust and hope. For the situation to be to get better, and in fact, one of the one of the guiding principles in the Family Law Act with parenting matters is that the court has to try and make an order that it considers is is likely to bring the proceedings to a complete end, and you know, least likely to see the parties back in the court in another year or two. It's meant meant to bring finality for everybody, mm. so that that whole time of your life can be. Signed, sealed and delivered and done and now we're moving forward. We're not going back to court every couple of years to fight it out again. Um, so a couple of terms um, which yeah, I'd like us to discuss, uh, which I found really interesting, um, particularly in regards to your research, Priscilla. Um, you mentioned in the news story that one motivation for the study was to banish the old-fashioned term broken home. So, you know, divorce has changed, families have changed, the way people live has changed, um, but... Broken home almost becomes a byword for divorce and separation these days. But I get the impression that your feeling is that there's a lot more to that term and there's a lot of baggage that goes with it as well. Yes, and it's a term that, you know, you know I'm involved as, a, as an educator for social work students, so I'm always getting them to <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> challenge their way of viewing the world. But this idea... It persists and it comes from, I think, you know, psychoanalytic theory is that if you can look at an adult and say there's something wrong, say they're, you know, they've got offending behaviours or there's drug use issues and you say, well, you know, let's go back to their childhood. Ah, that explains it. And it's a very superficial way of understanding um, human identity and human development. Um, and I think this, do, this idea does persist, this idea of a broken home. And again, we've talked a little bit about some of the guilt that people can feel separating um, as a separating couple. And it just adds that extra layer. You know, I'm going to damage my child. No one wants to damage their child. Um, and so we have this sort of this persisting kind of term uh, that is very outdated. It was very laden um, and it came about at a time when, you know, separation and divorce were seen as problematic. What we know now is that relationships end. Um, it's very normal for relationships to end. Um, divorce is very common these mm. days. Relationship forms have also changed. <coughs> Relationship forms have also changed. Um, so... <coughs> 
voice. Um, relationship forms have also changed. So we see couples who perhaps don't live in the same home and they're called LAT couples, living apart together. We see, um, we see you know, theorists from looking at same-sex couples um, talk about families of choice, that people um, who have perhaps been rejected by their biological families um, are choosing friends as their family. So we see these shifts in sort of in social relationships, which are all very normal and have happened across time. Um, and so I think it's time we recognise that this idea of a broken home or that, that, that there is such thing as a broken home is really kind of banished. It's not helpful to anybody and it, it, it reinforces this idea that divorce and separation is going to have a negative effect on children when in fact we know and what we know through this research is that it doesn't have to be the case. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a really interesting idea and I mean, I think as well when you consider that parents, you know, like you said, they don't want to hurt their children either and so, you know, I think each parent, even if they're living apart and the kids are living across two homes, generally speaking, they're probably trying to do their best to provide mm. two very happy homes the idea that perhaps that was the point of separating in the first place rather than living in one miserable household for years and years and years and years and years. And, years. Mm -hmm. and certainly, and certainly um, some of the people that we've interviewed have talked about, well, there was, you know, it was kind of a mutual decision to end. So even um, though they wouldn't have said that they were living in a miserable household, it was just a decision that they made together that they decided this wasn't working for whatever reason. But there wasn't really this massive kind of moment of, you know, realisation that actually no, this relationship isn't working. So um, even in that situation, couples are saying, you know, it helped to have those shared understandings and guidelines for one another um, to come back to all the time. So uh, f for our listeners that, you know, sort of perhaps experiencing this right now, thinking this might be in their future, what are the sort of the, the practical steps? Uh, yeah, that's, I'm aware that's a big question, but... You know, what are some simple key takeaways in terms of you know, how can you make the impact of this easier? Um, you know, I think we've mentioned about time and trust and perhaps continuity um, as well. Um, you know, what are just some of those simple key things that people can do? Um, I think firstly, if, if things are seeming difficult in negotiating um, living, you know, where people are going to live and what's going to happen, I think... Um, resorting to written communication rather than verbal communication. Very clearly, factual, you know, written communication that's not inflammatory um, is a good place to go back to because it means that it gives you a chance to sort of really sit back, reflect, and write something that's respectful um, to the other to the other person, and to recognise that that doesn't have to change, uh, that doesn't have to stay that way across time. That that will change. Um, I think being child-centred, as we've talked about, is really important. So so thinking about what does the child need across households if that's the way um, that things are going to be configured, what's going to happen at Christmas and what's going to happen at birthdays, how do we honour this child or children in, our, in both of our lives in a way that's going to be respectful to them and that demonstrates that we're able to put aside our, our personal conflicts or differences um, in order for us to be good parents to the children. I think um, the other ingredient, I guess, is having good faith, having faith that even though, you know, this person isn't right for you as a partner, um, but recognising their strengths as a parent is really important. Um, and as I said earlier, communication, perhaps holding back a little bit um, and um, really dealing with the most important issues rather than every little thing that's annoying you about your, your partner or ex-partner. 
Oh, uh, you've summed them up really well. <laughs> Actually, I can't think of any more. I was going to say, you know, keep it macro, not micro. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the same theme really about have that long-term view mm-hmm. about where you want to be. I often talk to clients about, you know, when you when it's your child's wedding day and you're both invited to the wedding, what's the dynamic going to be like mm-hmm. when you're through this parenting process of a young child and now you're, you know, mm-hmm. you're looking back on it, are you going to be proud with what you've done or not? So I, I think that's really important and certainly – you know, getting support where you need it, you know, getting professional support to keep you on track because um, I think dealing with your own emotional state will make a, an enormous difference to how you view and, and influence the situation. And even if you think you want to be amicable and the other person might not, um, I think it's surprising what you can do yourself with really when your intentions are in the right place, like leading by example with things. It's um, really interesting that you mentioned that, you know, what's the dynamic going to be on our child's wedding day, you know, 20 years down the track? And I guess it comes back to that thing that we were talking about before, which was, you know, um, the, you know, the idea of trying harder at your divorce, because it's not just the next couple of years right now, it's the, you know, the next 10, 20, 30, you are, you have a divorce relationship, even after your romantic mm-hmm. relationship yeah. is over. So, you know, you need to treat that almost like other relationships, like your workmates, like your friends, like your new partner, it's it's another relationship that you have to tend to. Otherwise, it's going to become quite sour and it's probably not a good starting point to begin with. Absolutely. That's exactly what our research is finding, you know, that we assume that relationships have ended um, when people separate um, or get divorced, um, but actually... They persist across time mm. and not only weddings, you know, grandchildren, yeah. <laughs> um, caregiving for grandchildren and other rituals associated with, you know, adulthood. Mm. It's, it's a relationship that's going to persist a long way into the future. So it's worth making the effort to work hard at it. Fantastic. Guys, um, thanks so much for your, for your time today, Priscilla. Thanks for coming in. Pleasure. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. <laughs> Jane, thank you as always. Right, thank you. And uh, that wraps it up for this episode of Surviving Separation. Um, of course, we've got a ton of other episodes on our SoundCloud and iTunes and wherever else you may get your podcasts. If you're looking for some more information about um, divorce and separation and all the issues around it, we've got a ton of uh, blogs and different content on our website, www tgb.com.au While you're there, uh, why not download our new ebook, Surviving Separation. It is a 60-page guide to splitting up, packing up, moving forward and all sorts of other questions that uh, might pop up um, as you go down this road. Um, Of course, we've got offices across Adelaide, Brisbane, Darwin and Perth, so uh, give us a call if you ever need anything. Catch you next time. You've been listening to Surviving Separation, a podcast brought to you by TGB Lawyers. Make sure you subscribe to the show and for the latest podcast updates and news, visit tgb.com.au forward slash podcasts. Tyndall Gask Bentley is one of Australia's largest and most respected family law firms. To arrange an appointment, contact the TGB team or read blogs and content, visit tgb.com.au. Please be aware that the discussions on this podcast are general in nature, true at the time of recording, and should not be considered legal advice. If you are facing a legal issue, seek advice from a lawyer specific to your circumstances.